Welcome to the third episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. I am your host, Mark Hacera. I'm a retired KC-135 pilot in the United States Air Force. I helped create and instruct at the world's only graduate level air refueling school, the U.S. Air Force KC-135 Division of the Air Force Weapons School. I authored the book Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit, which is available from Amazon in all four formats. Myself and two of my friends created the company Wall Pilot, custom aviation for the walls of your home, office, or hangar, which can be found at wallpilot.com. My lifelong passion has been aviation and airplanes. Standing on the hood of my grandpa Andy's car in my socks, I watched Boeing 707s, Douglas DC-8s, take off and land at Los Angeles International Airport. It was then that I said to myself, why work for a living when I can do this? And for over 60 years, I've been around airplanes. Ask any pilot to define flying and they're probably gonna tell you, long periods of boredom interrupted by short intermittent periods of extreme terror. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we debrief some of the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Our show investigates the tactics, techniques, and procedures these aviators created or cultivated during those extreme and extraordinary military, commercial, and private flying operations. This exploration gives our listeners practical advice on how the aviation world works and expands critical thinking skills and expertise in the air and on the ground. Many of these techniques and procedures are being revealed here for the very first time. This past weekend was the 20th anniversary of the attacks on 9-11. And I thought it was a good time to tell you my 9-11 story and how a phone call from one of my wife's friends at 5.50 in the morning caused me to go from fast asleep to full up war in 30 minutes. I'm going to teach you today tanker math and what it takes to keep all of those fighters and command and control airplanes airborne for a 24 hour period. And these numbers are going to astound you. And you have to remember, there were no rules of engagement for bringing down a U.S. airliner over American soil. And over the weekend, I had a very emotional phone call with a good friend of mine who is an F-15 pilot, and I asked him the question, what would be going through your head flying a mission like that on that day? Some of the answers he gave me are going to surprise you, and they made both of us very emotional while we were talking about it. So folks, grab an adult beverage of your choice. Sit down strap in and let's begin the lessons from the cockpit show in 1998 i received a new assignment taking me from scott air force base to fairchild air force base in spokane washington and i felt i i was at the top of my game i was loving life because my job was to create the world's only graduate level air refueling school, the 509th Weapons School at Fairchild Air Force Base. I had staffed the package for creating this school, where we were going to bed it down, what airspace we were going to use, what the syllabus was probably going to look like. All of those things were in this package that I helped create, which got the school started. I even got to pick the members of the initial cadre that were going to help build this school. And in April of 2001, the colonel I was working for fired me in second in command of that school because he had no confidence in my leadership ability. And he made that very apparent officer proficiency rating my OPRs. And now I wasn't going to go anywhere in the Air Force. I was not going to move up. I was not going to become a squadron commander, which is what everybody wants to do, command a squadron. It was gut-wrenching. It hurt me mentally and physically. 
I was embarrassed in front of my peers, and I didn't know what I was going to do. Where am I going to go? And so I went to be the chief of weapons and tactics in the 92nd Air Refueling Wing. Everything changed in my life with a phone call at 5.50 in the morning. Our son Travis was born on August 16th of 2001. He was only a month old. So we were pretty tired parents, as you can imagine. It was a beautiful Tuesday in Spokane, Washington, but 5.50 in the morning, you're a little tired when you have a one-month-old in the house. The phone rang, and my wife reached over, picked it up, and I could hear her friend Stacy's voice through the phone. Where's Mark? Where's Mark? Where's Mark? And she told her, well, he's asleep here next to me. It's 5.50 in the morning, Stacy." She says, wake him up and turn on the TV. An airplane has hit a building in New York. And I heard her say that and still a little groggy, reached over, picked up the TV remote, turned it on to Fox News. And I see this tower burning. And the runner across the bottom of Fox News is saying, a jetliner has hit one of the World Trade Center buildings. And as I sat up in bed, I'm looking at this image, thinking to myself, how can an airline pilot team with tens of thousands of hours run into a building on a clear and visibility unlimited day, a Cavu day? And I was going through that in my mind, but my subconscious was telling me, you are under attack. Get up, get going. But I was still a little groggy. It's 5.50 in the morning with a brand new baby in the house. And while I was sitting there watching this, I saw the next airplane hit the South Tower. Immediately, I knew we were under attack. I knew what was wrong. I knew immediately what was wrong. We are under attack. And I shot out of bed shedding clothes, heading for the shower because I didn't know when I would be home again. And I didn't want to go to work with messy hair. While I was in the shower, just a few minutes later, my wife came in and said, Colonel Lessel just called. You have been recalled. He wants you to come in now. And I finished up in the shower real quick. My wife had put my boots and a flight suit out and my kids were on the bed. And as I'm getting dressed in my flight suit and my boots, my kids began crying. There's a building on TV burning and dad is getting ready to go to work and he has a real sense of urgency. What is happening, dad? Why are you having to go to work with a building burning on TV? And I had to explain to him, Kids, America's under attack and dad has to go to work. This is what he does. And you can imagine how emotional that was for me, particularly with a one-month-old in the bed. And I knew then that I would not see much of Travis's childhood for at least two to three years, maybe longer. I hugged all my kids, told them how much I loved them, kissed my wife, and she asked me the question every wife asks as they watch their military husband go out the door. Silly question, hon. When do you think you're going to be home? 
as I finished zipping up my flight suit and grabbing a, a bag, I said, "Hun, tonight, tomorrow, Friday, I don't know. I love you. I've got to go to work. At the front door, I kissed her one more time, told her how much I loved her, and hopped in the car. And I was breaking the speed limit all the way to the base. And I'll admit that. It took me about 20 minutes to get to the front gate. During that 20 minutes, I was going through all of the mission planning that I had learned while I was at the tanker weapons school. And one of the things that we learned while we were there is the amount of gas air campaigns require, particularly when you're flying a no-fly zone over a country. And we call it tanker math. To give you an idea of what I'm thinking in my mind, I already know fighters are airborne, at least over the East Coast, probably the West Coast. What I didn't know is a very good friend of mine from college got a phone call at the same time, 5.50 in the morning, from his wing commander, and he flew F-16s for the Fresno Guard. We had F-15s at Portland, so I'm going through in my mind all of the numbers that I'm going to have to have in order to be able to keep fighters and probably command and control airplane called an E-3 AWACS, Airborne Warning and Control System, up for 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. And I was doing everything in one-day slices. An F-15 burns 8,000 pounds of gas an hour at tactical speeds, but 2,000 pounds a minute in afterburner if it's chasing something down. It holds 4,000 pounds per external tank. It holds three of these external tanks and holds about 15,500 internally. So burning 2,000 pounds a minute, you can see it's gonna go through its gas quickly. The F-16 burns about 3,200 pounds an hour and has two external tanks and holds about 9,000 pounds internally. Now I'm thinking, where are the combat air patrols going to be on the West Coast? And I just started going down the coast. Seattle, that's a large population center. Seattle's going to have a combat air patrol or a cap over the top of it. What's the next one south? Portland is the next population center. Okay, what's the next one south? Uh, San Francisco, it's going to have a combat air patrol over the top of it. What's the next one? Los Angeles. What's the next one? San Diego. So now I know there's going to be five combat air patrols 24-7, 365 over those five cities. To keep a four ship of F-15 Eagles airborne for 24 hours requires 18 tanker sorties. Each of those 18 tanker sorties is carrying 180,000 pounds of gas. I take off in my KC-135 on one mission with more gas than you will use in your car in 27 years. A typical American family uses about 1,000 to 1,100 gallons of gas a year. You have 18 KC-135s sorties, 180,000 pounds of gas, and you've got five 
cap stations, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, that I have to keep fighter jets fueled and operating over for the next 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year. While I'm driving into work, I figured it's going to take 140 tanker sorties a day and about 14 million pounds of gas to keep all of those airplanes in the air and the E3 Airborne Warning and Control System, the AWACS, needs 80,000 pounds every five hours, 24-7, 365. The next time you hear some senator or some congressman or congresswoman say, let's just establish a no-fly zone over this country, I want you to remember these numbers. Because logistically for gas, it's incredible. During the invasion of Iraq in 26 days, Air Force tankers transferred 417,133,000 pounds of gas in 26 days. Now, how do you wrap your head around that? That's a lot of gas. This is how you do it. All of you that are driving right now in a Ford F-150 truck, look around you. That 417,133,000 pounds of gas will allow a Ford F-150 truck to make 2,685 round trips to the moon or seven round trips to the sun. Put it another way, that amount of gas will keep a 737 jetliner airborne for 11.9 years. Keep it in the air flying for 11.9 years. We actually ran a Gulf Coast country in the Middle East out of gas during the invasion. The United Arab Emirates was not capable of producing the amount of fuel that 20 KC-10s based at Al Drafra required to fly their missions in a day. The 20 KC-10s were flying 38 missions a day and using about 1.7 million pounds of gas, if I remember right. We had to bring in a very large super tanker dock it in Dubai, and we were pumping the gas straight to Aldafra to keep Aldafra full of gas to operate those 20 KC-10s, 38 missions a day. They take off with 340,000 pounds of gas. The tanker bases that we had on the West Coast were Fairchild. We had about 48 KC-135s there. We had a guard unit at Beale flying E-models, not quite as capable gas-wise as the R model, but still a great tanker. Don't get me wrong. We had KC-10s at Travis Air Force Base in Napa Valley, California. And then March Air Force Base had two tanker squadrons there. We had a guard tanker squadron at Salt Lake City International. All of these planning factors are what's going through my head while I'm going to work. I'm trying to solve the problem while I'm driving to work. By the time I got to the front gate, I had a pretty good idea of what was going to be required. I had been through numerous air defense exercises while I was stationed at Kadena 
So I had a pretty good idea of how much gas it was going to take to do all of this. 14 million pounds a day was a pretty good wag on the gas. But there was one other factor that I knew that we were going to have, and that was sometime in the afternoon, we would have tankers on alert ready for the crews to hop in the jet and go in a moment's notice and be airborne under 10 minutes. The old Strategic Air Command alert facility at Fairchild Air Force Base hadn't been used in probably a decade. But it was the perfect place to park tankers that were going to be on alert. We actually had somebody from the comm group go out, plug in a phone in the wall to see if the phone system still worked. Because if we're going to put crews in that alert facility and park airplanes on the old Strategic Air Command Christmas tree, we had to be able to talk to them. And so we had to go through and and look at that facility. But that tasking didn't come down until later in the afternoon. Now, to give you an idea of the alert price tag of tankers, I saw a slide once that said on 9-11, there were eight KC-135 sorties on alert at various bases throughout the United States. By 4.30 that afternoon, there was 241 KC-135s, KC-10s on alert, ready to fly missions at a moment's notice in case we came under attack again. A lot of those airplanes ended up being launched off of alert and fulfilling the schedule for the air refueling taskings that we were getting, particularly on the West Coast and the East Coast. In our syllabus in the weapons school, we had established a relationship with the Western Air Defense Sector, WADS, which is based at McCord Air Force Base. They are the radar defense for the entire West Coast. They command all the airplanes. They have all the radar that's watching what's going on. And their call sign is Bigfoot. There was a weapons officer there. His name was Soup. And I wanted to get him on the phone and find out, okay, Soup, how are you going to command and control this? Is the AWACS coming? Are you guys going to do it from the ground? Ground Controlled Intercept, as we call it, GCI? Or is the AWACS going to fly this? But we didn't know any of this. It's a pickup game at this point. No one had thought that the United States would come under attack by airliners being flown by jihadis and used as cruise missiles into buildings. None of us had envisioned that. And yet all of the signs were there. These guys were going through flight training at different schools, telling them, I don't want to know how to take off and land. I just want to know how to fly. I finally got to the front gate and there was a line about two miles long to get on base. It took me about 40 minutes just to get to the front gate because the base was locked down now. There was only one gate to get through and they were checking every vehicle that came through. I finally got into the command post and as I got into the command post, it was shortly after the Pentagon had been hit. And I began talking to all the planners about these things that were going through my head. Fortunately, we had a great scheduler at Fairchild. His call sign is Wybo. 
and he intuitively knew we were going to get tasked to do things. Weibo was taking the crews that were coming in for training flights that day, putting them in base billeting and telling them, you're on alert, you're here until I call you. We know we're going to get tasking, we just don't know when it's going to come. And it came late. The Tanker Airlift Control Center, Transcom, was busily trying to figure out what are the taskings, what are we going to do? And we already had fighters airborne that needed gas. Our very first tanker sortie, with all these fighters in the air, was tasked to go to, of all places, Bozeman, Montana. But they had a very important mission to do, and that was to pick up a FEMA team that was there doing an exercise. That FEMA team was the first response team for disasters like this. They had to get back to Washington, D.C. so they could go to New York and begin their investigation of what happened. That aircraft commander, I saw him two days later when we were both on alert in the alert facility. And I asked him, so what was that like? He said to me, it was the eeriest mission he'd ever flown. They got into Bozeman, picked up the FEMA team, and then were on their way to Washington, D.C. Chicago Center told them they were the only airplane that was in that sector at that time. As they got closer to Chicago, some F-16s out of the Michigan Guard said, hey, do you got some gas? They put the boom down and gave them some gas so that they could continue their mission. And they went on into Washington, D.C. and dropped off the FEMA team. On the way back to Fairchild, they refueled at random some more fighters and then landed back at Fairchild Air Force Base. By the way, random air refueling over the United States is verboten. It's actually in our books that we are not allowed to do random air refueling except for only with scheduled receivers. And now you've got all these airplanes in the air that need gas. And of course, the crews, God bless them, flexed to the situation and did the things that they needed to do. We were literally making things up as we went along. We were doing everything within our regulations, but those regulations were for peacetime, not wartime. Nobody had ever planned to do a no-fly zone over the top of the United States. All of the airline traffic was grounded almost immediately, so nothing was flying except for military aircraft. But still, there was a lot of things that we needed to do. One of the first things I began doing was building an in-flight guide, what we call a smart pack, so that they had something to reference when they were flying these missions. Because we didn't have anything, a wartime type of smart pack for defending the United States. I told you about my friend that got a phone call at the same time I did. And he mentioned to me something very fascinating. At this time, there were no rules of engagement for taking out and shooting down a U.S. airliner over American soil. There was no command and control for it. Who's the approval authority for you to shoot at the airplane? Obviously, that laid with either the vice president, Dick Cheney, or the president, George W. Bush. But that approval had not passed down to anybody else. So if one of these fighter pilots had to go shoot down an airliner, approval authority was probably going to come from Vice President Cheney, who was in Washington, D.C., or George W. Bush, who was flying on Air Force One, and the NECAP, the National Emergency Command Post, flying out of Offutt. 
But my good friend that was flying F-16s out of Fresno told me that he and his flight lead were actually working out rules of engagement while they were flying in the air. They were doing this on the fly. Now, understand, these two gentlemen are extremely experienced fighter pilots. And in their F-16 unit, all they do is defense of the United States. My college buddy that was flying with the Fresno Guard in his F-16 was an airline pilot. He might have to shoot down an American airliner over the United States, and it may be one of his buddies. We don't think of that. The emotional issues that you have with, I have to defend the United States, and I may have to kill people to keep from killing people because that airplane's now being used as a cruise missile. Over the weekend, I called a good friend of mine who flies F-15s. He was my boss when we were in Okinawa, Japan. His call sign is Flounder. And I really, really enjoyed talking to him because not only did he fly F-15Cs and F-15Es, but he was a captain at American. So he had both perspectives of not only being a fighter pilot, but also being an airline pilot. During this conversation, I asked him, Flounder, you're an F-15 guy on 9-11. What's going through your head? What are you thinking about the rules of engagement, the commit authority and criteria, all of those things? And he told me, well, first of all, the first thing he said is commit authority is going to come from the executive branch. Either Vice President Cheney or President Bush was going to have to authorize that missile shot. The other thing he told me was, I have this great radar and these great missiles. He told me that obviously the airliner is non-maneuverable target. It is now being used as a cruise missile, and it may be down low, it may be up high, but it's going very fast, like a cruise missile. The F-15 has this great radar and these great missiles. The advanced medium-range air-to-air missile, the Sparrow missile, and then the heat-seeking Sidewinder. He says, it's no problem to find the airliner. But he said to me, I would wait till the last minute to shoot it, and I would do it over some unpopulated area. And then he got a little emotional. His voice started cracking because he said to me, I have to kill Americans to keep Americans from getting killed. The pilots in the airplane are probably already dead. But he said, Mark, I'm going to have compassion on the passengers. And this is where he got very emotional. He says, I'm going to expend at least three missiles to make sure, Mark, that everybody in that airplane is dead. And he stopped for just a moment. And he said to me, because Mark, I do not want them to experience the free fall to earth. We don't think about that aspect of this, but look at the position that puts these fighter pilots in. Fortunately, this did not happen. But these are the things the military guys had to think about. These fighter pilots had to think about. An American airplane is being used as a cruise missile. The pilots are probably already dead. And now I have to save more lives by taking more lives. And I don't want them to have the last experience on earth of free falling to their death. That Tuesday, September 11th was a very long day for me. I think I got home that morning about 3 a.m. 
because Weibo told me, hey, you're going on alert Thursday. And eight days after 9-11, I was in a KC-135 headed for the Middle East on my first of five deployments between September of 2001 and May of 2003. My first deployment was to Inserlik Air Base, which I had already been scheduled for to fly Operation Northern Watch, the no-fly zone over northern Iraq. I went from one no-fly zone to another no-fly zone. And amazingly, the airplanes were still carrying live air-to-air missiles. That was pretty sobering. But they told us, we don't know when you're going to come back from this. Normally, that's a 60-day rotation. And they told us, we don't know when you're going to come back. I left on the 19th of September, and I came back to the States on the 4th of December. And on the 6th of December, I got orders to go back to the Middle East to be the chief of the air refueling control team, combined air and space operations center at Prince Sultan Air Base in Saudi Arabia, relieving one of the students from our very first KC-135 weapon school classes, Dewey. Between December 4th, when I got home, and leaving on January 13th to go back to Saudi Arabia, the 13th of January being my wife's birthday, I got to fly two Noble Eagle sorties and refuel the AWACS on one mission, 80,000 pounds, just like I had postulated, and, and... F-15s from the Portland Air National Guard that were doing a combat air patrol over Seattle from September 19th through May of 2003. I was home, I think, just under 60 days. Travis was growing like crazy, but he had no idea who I was. And as all of you in the military know, your family sacrifices. And I came home from one of my deployments and Val handed Travis to me at the airport, and he wouldn't come to me because he didn't know who I was. That was a little heart-wrenching. I was going to miss a good portion of his young life, and I knew it. I am a professional speaker, and this is one of the stories that I tell. Having to go from fast asleep to full-up war in 30 minutes because we had built this school exactly for this reason. But this school had prepared me in a way that no other school in the world can prepare air refueling pilots and navigators and now boom operators. I could put a plan together in my head while I was driving. I had a really good idea of what resources we were going to need to be able to defend Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego. But we had to make up a lot of things as we went. My fighter friends didn't have rules of engagement for this. All of that had to be worked out on the fly. And they were put in positions that were just heart-wrenching because many of my fighter friends told me that they got committed on targets, airplanes, even helicopters, until they figured out that they were not a threat. And that whole decision matrix had to be built. And for a couple days, the approval authority was either the vice president or the president. But sometimes military guys have to make really gut-wrenching decisions that involve a person's life or people's life in the air or on the ground. And I hope we never have to do that again. Because I could hear in my friend Flounder's voice the emotional gut-wrenching 
mental process he was going through in his head. And here it is 20 years later, and we're both still getting emotional about even thinking about having to do this. That is what we were trained and tasked to do. I'm glad that none of my fighter pilot friends have to live with the guilt of shooting down American citizens in an airliner over the United States, because that would just be too hard to handle. I hope you've really enjoyed this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. My 9-11 story and learning a little bit about tanker math and rules of engagement and things that fighter pilots have to think through when they're out doing their missions. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family. You can find all of my episodes on my website at marcusera.com. This episode of Lessons from the Cockpit has been sponsored by the book Tanker Pilot Lessons from the Cockpit, which I authored in 2017. On the next two episodes of Lessons from the Cockpit, I mentioned in the second one, I was going to talk about a sticky note left on my desk that uh, led me to create the biggest exercise in 18-wing history. But I recently had a childhood friend of mine here at the house, and we sat down for two hours. My buddy Coma was an F-4 weapon system officer during the Cold War flying Phantoms out of Osan, Korea and Clark Air Base in the Philippines. When he left the Air Force, he went to work for Lockheed Martin and was one of the lead systems engineers on the F-22 program. And there are some amazing stories he has flying Phantoms during the Cold War and creating this incredible jet that we call the F-22 Raptor. So thank you for listening to this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. Have a great week.